Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy and your host today to talk about data protection and data security. Now that sounds kind of ordinary, but I think you're going to find this is a more interesting episode because I have a fascinating guest that I want to bring on and let you listen in on our conversation. So as always, please make sure you are following us on LinkedIn. And if you don't subscribe, please subscribe to CISO Tradecraft. You see, today, information, data, if you will, represents the crown jewels. But beyond that, the hard part is, is that we can't just fit them into one box. It's not like there's a Tower of London with the guards all around it. Our information is everywhere from our laptops, to our servers, to removable hard drives, to the cloud, to client machines, to laptops, and you name it. And so as a result, how do we know where our company data actually resides? How do we know if it's exposed or how do we reduce that exposure without causing any damage to the business? The Storage Network Industry Association, or SNIA, defines data protection as the process of safeguarding important data from corruption, compromise, or loss and providing the capability to restore data to a functional state should something happen to render the data inaccessible or unusable. Now, if we look at that as a core definition, we find out there's three key areas of data protection that SNIA offers. The first is traditional data protection using data storage tools and processes to create high availability backups. You can think of performing weekly backups or restores or raids to ensure you could survive a hard drive crash and do things such as mirroring and striping the data there, archiving old information and replicating to mirror sites. So traditional data protection has been around for a long, long time and it's still important, but it's not the only thing we do. Because number two, data privacy is important because we need to understand the legislation, the policies and the best practices that we need to follow. For example, if you're subject to HIPAA with medical data, you have to really understand what those rules are. If you're a credit card processor, payment card industry data security standards, or the PCI DSS, and if you're going to run the risk of processing data for children under the age of 13, pre-teens, you need to understand the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA. And these are just in the United States. Imagine if you're dealing with GDPR and all of the other requirements. Now, CCPA, California, has their own Protection Act. And we're starting to see more and more states get into the data privacy area and having to deal with that compliance. Now, data security is really where much of cyber spends its time. It focuses on how we safeguard and protect our information, our data, from loss. And we can think of encrypting data during storage or transmission, processing controls to ensure that confidentiality is not breached, that information is not compromised, and tools like data loss prevention to look for things heading out the door. And therefore, what we want to be able to do is have tools that allow us to enforce our data protection, our data privacy, and our data security. Well, at the end of the day, we have to think about Oh, I'm good. I've got multi-factor authentication. Nobody can steal our information. The problem is attackers have figured out just how to get users to say, hey, you know, we've sent you an MFA request. Could you tell us what it is? They'll masquerade as a help desk or possibly as another vendor. And users who have not been trained effectively to spot these types of attacks will cough up an MFA token, at which point the attacker's in, unless you have tools that allow your application or your systems to note a sudden 
change an IP address, which can happen, by the way, if you're on a laptop and you move around or in a cell phone area or to pop on the VPN, some of those are legit, but many of them are not. So fundamentally, then, we have three questions. Where is my data? What data is exposed? And how do we reduce the risk of data being exposed without breaking anything? Now, to help with those questions, we brought on an industry expert for our show. So today, I'm excited to introduce to you Brian Vecchi, the field CTO at Veronis. Now, Brian, can you tell us a little about yourself and your background? Sure. So today I'm the field CTO at Veronis and how I got here is kind of a long and winding road. I studied computer science and like a lot of folks in the late 90s and early 2000s, I ended up in IT. I was a developer. I was a applications analyst. I was a project manager, a product manager. And then about 12 years ago, found myself in kind of a unique role at Veronis where my, my job is to do basically anything that uh, anybody put in front of me and to really spend a lot of time digging into who we are and what we do and helping everybody else understand it. And after eight or 10 years of doing that, I'm fortunate enough to, to serve in this role. And so now my job is to spread the good word about our technology and how, our, how, our, how it works and what we do and where and how it fits in the rest of the galaxy of tools people are using to uh, try to secure their data. Oh, yeah, there's a lot out there. And I think there's almost too much noise in the world where you get analysis paralysis for a lot of CISOs when they see things. Or they just go to like a major show very recently at Black Hat and then you go down yep. to the, the vendor showcase. And I mean, there are people down there that are paying careful attention, looking for business solutions and other people just walking around with the bags of how much stuff can I collect and bring home? I had a friend of mine. Yeah, and no, I had a friend of mine who was a CISO who said, and this was a few years ago, but we were at RSA, which is the same thing. It's like a carnival. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what, I could spend I could spend an unlimited amount of money here on products and and you know all kinds of things. But and I and this was in my in, in my early days at Veronis. I said, So how do you make the decision? He's like, Well, I gotta I gotta find the things that help me make a decision that I couldn't have made otherwise. A lot of the stuff is just telling me things that I already know. It's an interesting thought, uh, something that'll help me make a decision I couldn't do otherwise. Because as you go through, and what I recommend to people when they go through major shows like that, like you know, well, most of us have been, or if you haven't, you need to go to Black Hat, RSA, some of the major events, is that, of course, you have all the talks, and that's just part of it. And then there's the vendor showcase, which is the other part of it, and of course, the third part of the parties and the events and things like that. And that's if you're not on a dinner list or party list, then you're probably missing out on one of those events there. But as we look at the concept of saying, hey, we've got some real business issues that we've discussed earlier, then what's your thought about this data security problem? I mean, one of the things I used to ask people, what keeps CISOs up at night? It's like, where is my data? So really, today, there's a lot more options for where data could be. So typically, where do we find it? And what should you be thinking about as a security leader with respect to securing and protecting that? Well, you, know, you asked about six different questions in that sentence. Let's start with the where. Uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, when we would talk about data, there was really kind of one or two different options. Either data was in some sort of database or structured system like a mainframe, or it was sitting on a file share uh, on a server somewhere that you controlled. These days, that's not the case. You've got data on premises. Sure, we're going to be in a hybrid world probably forever. But you've also got data in the cloud. And when we say data in the cloud, it could be on collaborative stores like 365 or G driver box. It could be infrastructure as a service. You could have take, you could have airlifted some of those servers into AWS or Azure or GCP. You've certainly got 
structured systems and you've got applications that are big business applications that store a lot of data. Think about Salesforce or, or GitHub or S3 or Azure Blob that are just the backends for all kinds of different applications. So where is my data is a big and complicated question. And especially these days, when you asked about securing and protecting it, it's not just where. I could snap my fingers and show you all of the places that all of your data is, but that doesn't solve a problem. The problem is not just where is this data, but is it in the right place? Is it is it being used appropriately? Is it is it exposed to anybody who doesn't need to have access to it? Is it is it open to the internet? Is it open to my company? And as my business changes, as our requirements change, as people collaborate, how do I know what everybody's doing and are they doing it safely? So the questions of protecting and securing it are much bigger and I would argue a lot more complicated than just where is my data. Interesting. So of course, there's always the most, what I always thought was one of the most difficult data management problems, which is classification. I was an old DOD guy. I spent three decades more than that with every paragraph having a little marking in front of it. So it became culture. Anything you write, you, you, you do that unless it's like pure on class and then you don't worry about it. But in the business world where we have sensitive client specific information, internal, et cetera, all those become a bit of a challenge because of course not everything needs to be protected equally. And so from that perspective, if we're putting things up into cloud storage, on-prem databases, uh, even contractor laptops, I mean, I gotta face it, if we do business with third parties, some of our stuff's out there floating around. How would you go recommend getting a handle on everything to begin with? Because it sounds like one of those scary problems that you keep kicking to the right, hoping that maybe no one's gonna call you out on it, but it's, it's the elephant in the room for a lot of folks. Yeah, I don't, need, I don't think we live in that world anymore where you can just kick the elephant down the road. That metaphor fell off. Yeah, there you go. You we'll, know what I mean? we'll do a mixed metaphor there. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we live in that world anymore. So it's interesting. You, you bring up classification, and classification can mean two things. It can mean, am I discovering the contents of the file or the data uh, stored? Is there, you know, is there intellectual property or PII or PCI or HIPAA data or what have you? And then there's also the notion of I'm creating something or I'm working on something. And as a user, I'm going to classify this as secret or confidential or public or what have you. Both of those have challenges. What's interesting about the, the, the kind of the manual, the, the classification that your users will do is the same person will classify the exact same document containing the exact same content differently, depending on whether they've had lunch or not, just because there's you know more sugar in their brain and they're more apt to spend an extra 10 seconds deciding that this is something that's actually sensitive and, and people make mistakes too. And a lot of our, especially business users want to, they don't like, they don't like controls. They want to work around them. They want to mark something as public just so that they can get their job done and email this to the person that needs it. So the question just doesn't become, what do I have and what's sensitive? In order to start solving some of these problems, visibility is really key. You can't solve the problems that you don't know about. And we live in a world now that all of these data stores are highly collaborative. Uh, you know, I. We use Microsoft 365. All of my data is sitting in OneDrive or in Teams or in various SharePoint sites. And you know, 10 years ago, if I wanted to work with you or I wanted to work with somebody on my team or outside of my team, for instance, I would have to call IT and they would have to open a ticket and we'd have to figure out, all right, do I FTP it outside the company or do I, do I have somebody added to an Active Directory group to grant access to my data? But those days are gone. Or, or worse yet, a giant series of email attachments that just oh, go yeah, flying. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you might, yeah, or you might as well, you know, IP over carrier pigeon. Just tape a tape a, uh, a backup tape to, to to a truck and send it out. But that's those days. Those days are gone. 
these days I can just click share and I can share with anybody at any time from any device, anywhere in the world at any time. It's, it's made me and it's made everybody else a whole heck of a lot more productive. I can work from anywhere, from any device, anywhere in the world at any time, share data and collaborate with anybody that I might need to. So the real question then becomes, can our security department and our various security departments, do they have the visibility to know what's going on and the control to understand that while we're collaborating, and that's a, that's, that's a worthy goal, we need to manage this tension between productivity and convenience and security. Because if anybody can get access to anything at any time, that makes it very hard to ensure that only the right people have access to what they're supposed to and that data is being used appropriately. And just because I sent you a link today to a folder that we're collaborating on that you need access to doesn't mean that you need access to that data in a year when there's a lot more data inside of it, none of it relevant to you personally. And you know, I'm just picking on you in this scenario, but this is the kind of thing that happens all the time. So it's really about managing that tension between productivity and security. And to answer your question specifically, it starts with visibility, not just what you have and where it is, but how it's being used and who's got who's got access to it and where it's exposed and it's combining all of those things it's looking at data through a variety of different lenses you can't just rely on one source of information for instance classification because if all you have is classification that doesn't tell you where that data is and it doesn't tell you where it's at risk because you don't know where it's exposed and and how it's being used and if all you've got is logs well that doesn't tell you where data is at risk it doesn't help you prioritize anything and if you don't understand not just the risk, but also the behavior, you can't fix anything. Because just because something is sensitive in a place that's open doesn't mean that you can just shut it down because you might break something. One CISO I talked to that tried to solve some of these problems, just with some of these problems, just with their on-premises data said, he was like a bull in a china shop. Every time they, they, they knocked down one problem, they broke four other things. And the first lesson I learned, uh, my, my first job was on a help desk. And I think everybody should work on a help desk at some point in their career. My first job was on a help desk and my boss said, Brian, you know, the fastest way to get us in trouble, and by us, I mean you, because you've been here for two weeks, is to try to fix something. If you don't know what you're doing, and as we try to manage that tension between productivity and security, if we implement strict security controls that get in the way of our organization's ability to leverage data, because data is a business asset or it's an organizational asset, we get in people's way, we're going to break things, and that's a problem. And I've already got a couple ideas out of that. And one of my kind of like the triad you came up with, the productivity, convenience, and security. If we go back to Bruce Schneier, who said convenience is the enemy of security to a certain extent, and we think about that, but yet to be productive, we have to be convenient. So there's always trade-offs involved in there. And the hard part is, is that a lot of times when those trade-offs are made, they're made in the heat of the moment. Uh, you go call up and uh, the head of a sales team says, we got to get this thing so we can close the deal at five o'clock and they just want to move everything out the door. And, and we could probably talk for hours about that. And there's no right answer other than the fact that there should be, as you had said before, an understanding of your data beyond just a mere classification, but knowing to whom it should have access to it and for how long, which kind of brings up an interesting question of stale information. Now, passwords get stale and for for decades now, we're, we're used to being able to be told after N number of days, it's time to change your password because the old one is, well, stale. But what about data? I mean, information gets stale and it doesn't mean that it's useless. In fact, anybody who's ever looked at the data remnants problem will agree that there's a lot of potential danger in stale data. 
Uh, so what are your thoughts on that and how do organizations make sure that they don't end up with these little digital time bombs parked all over the place? Well, the answer to that last question, how do organizations ensure that they don't have digital time bombs all over the place? They don't. <laughs> they, they, frankly, they don't. Microsoft had a great stat a few years ago, and I'm, I, I'm betting it's still directionally relevant. Uh, they said 70%, and I might, I might even be misquoting them again, but I think it's 70% of all files, and I think they were using SharePoint as an example, 70% of all files in SharePoint were never touched 90 days after they were created. Meaning, you create something, with it after 90 days, most of your data will never be touched again. And I think that that rings true for most of us, right? We, my, 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 the, the way I work is I go into Outlook or PowerPoint or uh, Excel or Word, and I look at my recent documents. Because honestly, the last 20 documents, there's like a 95% chance that what I'm looking for is in one of those last 20. But my, my OneDrive these days is like 75 gigs. And that encompasses way more than the last 20 documents. Now, sometimes I need to go back in time and find some stuff. Sometimes I, I, I need something that I haven't looked at in the last couple of months, but it's, it's rare. So there are digital time bombs everywhere in my OneDrive. And that's one personal data store among thousands, let alone the corporate data stores and the team stores. And I don't just mean Microsoft Teams, I mean departmental shares. And I, then you add in all these other places that data can live. There is no organization that's very good at this because you know, when I, I'll, I'll give a talk about privacy and uh, data protection, and, and one of the tenets of privacy is data minimization. Get rid of what you don't need. So I'll ask the question of the audience, how many of you have a retention and disposition policy? And if there are bigger than 150 people in the company, every hand goes up. Every CISO says, of course, we have a data retention policy, you nimrod. Of course we do. And then I ask, how many of you are applying it to all of your data? And every single hand goes down. Because just like the, you know, you don't want to be the person that gets in trouble for trying to fix something and breaking three more things, you don't want to be the person that deleted something that somebody comes a year later and says, wait, I need this. But it's not just the stuff that's a year later, it's the stuff that's three years later and five years later and 10 years later. The amount of data on average that we see that is both open to literally every employee in the company and hasn't been touched in more than three years is north of 15% of the data in most organizations, and I think that number is soft. Of course, we don't want to delete anything, especially if it has business value, but what we're not adequately doing in general is measuring the risk of all of this stale data. Ask any company who's gotten hit with ransomware over the last couple of years how much of the data that was locked down that cost, cost them a massive operational disruption, meaning they had to spend weeks restoring a large NAS platform, for instance, just so they could get people back to work, then ask them how much of that data had actually never been touched in the last year or two years or three years. It's all a digital time, Bob. And this goes back to visibility. We don't want to delete anything because we don't know what it is. We don't know who's using it. We don't know how important it is. So the data is being managed by custodians that don't have this kind of context. The data as a digital asset has been put in the hands of IT or security or compliance, but data is not an IT asset data is a business asset or an organizational asset. I guarantee you that when I leave uh, a, or change roles or leave a company, that my access to financial accounts that were relevant to that role or relevant to that job get taken away. I guarantee you that my physical access to uh, a data center, for instance, if I was in IT, gets pulled as soon as I leave. How many of us are 100% sure that users, when their role changes, 
their access is no longer taken away or the data that they were using that's no longer relevant is safely disposed of? The answer is almost never. And and it becomes an almost sort of a unachievable state. I think there's one one situation, and as I think about it, it wasn't even data. It was uh, in the financial world. Many employees have to take two weeks off. You work for a bank, do an IT. You've got to get out of the building long enough that if something were going on, then you're long, gone long enough, someone will find it. But when they come back, you get back and you settle down Monday morning and back to work. And this organization said, when you come back after your mandatory two-week break, we've zero-based all of your access. So any additional privileges you've picked up over the last 51 and a half weeks or whatever, or then you have to rebuild them and said, do you need this? Do you need this? Do you need this? Well, that's one in you know, how many. And then again, just talking access, not the data. So there's a dichotomy here. Information can be incredibly valuable if you say, hey, we did this a couple of years ago. We can reuse it. We can redo it. It could become valuable. It could also, of course, become a liability where somebody says, hey, we want to you, you face a lawsuit. And then some discovery is said, hey, we need to see everything you ever said since the beginning of time in any language ever created by any sentient being. And they look at the, if you ever seen these discovery notices, they pretty much try to cover the earth. So that dichotomy of, yeah, I might need it, or this is not ever going to be valuable. We all face that with our garages and our attics and our closets. And yet, short of house cleaning on a regular basis, sometimes things accrue. And I know that my mom, for example, has been in the same house over 60 years. And there's going to be an interesting... Uh, just like her mother, who was 64 years in the same house. It's a Buffalo thing, I guess. You know, you, you buy a home with a bathroom on the ground floor so that when you're in your 80s, you can don't have to go up and down the stairs. But in a way, we all have become lazy because it's so easy to pigeonhole and store data and things such as that. We've all become digital hoarders for sure. So a couple of points. You mentioned, you know, we might, I don't want to delete this, I might need it. But I guarantee you that legal department would rather that that data uh, that is subject to discovery was defensively disposed of. We deleted this because we had a policy that was perfectly legal that after five or seven years, it was no longer needed. We have deleted it. We do not need to turn over anything to you. But of course, nobody does that. I'll tell you a, a, an interesting story. There was an attorney general of a U.S. state. I'm not going to name the state. And they were getting killed by this one law firm who had discovered an, an, an amazing business model. And what this law firm would do is they would find a client. It almost wouldn't matter who, a citizen of the state. And they would do two things. First of all, they would file a Freedom of Information Act request or the state equivalent of it to that state's attorney general saying, show me all of the data that you've ever collected on this person. And at the exact same time, they would file a lawsuit on whatever grounds. They would make something up. They would file a lawsuit with that person as the plaintiff. And then during the course of that lawsuit against the state, of course, there's a discovery process where the state was required to turn over all information related to that person. The lawsuit would be completely frivolous and wouldn't matter, but that didn't matter at all because then what the law firm would do is they would take the results of query one or this request one and the results of request two, which should be identical. They are, it's the same entity. It's the state. Here's all the information that you've collected on Brian Vecchi, except guess what? They were always different because it was completely different processes. They were uh, handled by completely different departments. And then what the, the, this law firm would do is say, listen, now we can sue the heck out of you because we can prove that you are, it's in either one or other of these 
requests that we make is incomplete, or actually they probably both are because the data sets are totally different, the state was forced to settle. And until the state actually had the visibility that I'm talking about, what data is, where it is, how it's being used, and they could actually standardize how they were treating this. Now, the state's not a business, but it is an organization, and the data was an organizational asset, not an IT one. Once they could standardize the visibility and how, the process around how they were treating it, they, they were getting killed. But now, of course, they figured out, figured out how to solve that. To go back to your analogy, now, it, it, it is kind of like cleaning a garage, but imagine trying to clean your garage in the dark. What would that be like? And now for most organizations, data isn't like a garage. It's like a series of airplane hangers all over the world. Try doing that in the dark. I remember if you remember the movie Indiana Jones, the first one, where mm -hmm. at the end of the movie, they put this crate out into this massive warehouse, right? And it'll just get lost forever. That's how we treat data. So the right way to do it is, first of all, you need automation, you need visibility, you got to turn on the lights. But but few of us ever have. And that's why these problems feel like they're so big and, and so complex. So what you, you've pointed out then is data is a potential liability, but not for the traditional reasons, such as, all right, you're a tobacco company and you had studies from the 1960s that supposedly were destroyed. I'm not going to go down that rat hole. But, but really what you're saying is that if something is disclosed, let's forget about ancient stuff going to a lawyer. Let's just talk about information that somehow gets loose. Somebody gains access to it, lost laptop, et cetera. How do you control the blast radius of something like that? How do you ensure that this thing doesn't propagate if somebody were to be able to get a toehold in there that they're not going to go ahead and, and keep going? It's a really excellent question. And I'm going to use your laptop. The, 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 the fact that you mentioned a laptop is really interesting because you know, 10, 15 years ago, if somebody lost the laptop, it's, oh my goodness, what is on this laptop? What have we lost? These days, it's all encrypted. If I lose my laptop, you know what my IT department's worried about? They're not worried about the data that's on the laptop. Maybe there's some stuff there. But what, what they're worried about is my laptop is authenticated to all kinds of environments, not just our corporate environment. It's you know, and through the VPN, which as soon as they open, if they can get in, now they're in the VPN. But also, we've got, you know, at Veronis, we have 400 SaaS applications. 20 of them are core to our business. And each one of them has their own account store. Even if you're using a single sign-on identity solution like Okta or something like that, uh, each, each of these SaaS applications has a different data store. So what they're really worried about is the authentication keys, the tokens that are alive. What can this device grant me access to? And that's the blast radius. The blast radius of a stolen laptop isn't what's on that laptop. The blast radius is what is this laptop authenticated to? What is Brian's account authenticated to? And what does Brian have access to? So now let's go back to the data question. The average user at a given organization has access to on day one, before they've ever asked for anything, before you, know, you mentioned that example of week 51, it's over, now you got to request access to anything. The average user has access to 17 million files just because 20% of the data is open to everybody and they get put in default groups that grant them access to all kinds of things that have absolutely no relevance to their job function at all. That's the blast radius. And that's just for on-premises file systems. What about all these SaaS applications, which are designed for collaboration, which we can agree is the antithesis of security. They're designed for convenience and collaboration and productivity first off, because they're all accessible by a web browser and you can share anything with anybody. They are all, they each have their own configuration stack. Find the smartest person that you know, securing your AWS environment, which could, it literally you can build a career 
on understanding how to secure everything that goes on in AWS. And now ask her, the smartest person that you have in AWS, ask her to do the exact same thing in Salesforce. She's gonna be lost. It's a completely different discipline. And this is true for every one of these SaaS applications. And on top of that, they're all connected together through APIs. So it's not even my personal access, it's what, do I, what application do I have access to that might be connected to another one with misconfigured API permissions that might give me access to everything. This is the blast radius. The blast radius isn't just one device. The blast radius is all of this data in all of these different places in platforms designed for collaboration that are all connected together. And that's a different paradigm that a lot of security leaders don't think about. And they're like, oh, great. Now I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Why did you have to bring Brian on the show? He's now got me worried about something. But there are approaches that can help limit that. When we think of you know, let's say threats like APTs or even ransomware, and there's the new families that are coming out. And I, I was reading something recently where they're delivering kind of a ISO image through a zip file in a uh, attachment where it will then spawn off and begin. And then it has its own little malware running in the ISO and off it goes. So there's, they're getting more and more creative, huge amount of time and energy and effort being into development on the mm -hmm. evil side, if you will. But on the good side, there's, there's a lot, lot of money in it. You can get paid these days. Yeah, it's a business. And your chance of getting arrested are pretty slim if you're operating outside of the geographic footprint. But but in a situation like that, then, what type of developments are taking place on the defense side to, to help mitigate those things? So let's go back to what does it mean to have visibility? What does it mean to turn on the lights in your garage, to use our, our previous analogy, or and the lights in all of your airplane hangars? You need to know three things about your data beyond just where it is. So you need to know what it is. Is it important? I mean, somebody's vacation photos in their My Documents folder is a one level of risk. A spreadsheet with 150,000 credit card numbers sitting inside their OneDrive with a link that anybody in the internet can use, which is an example that I saw in a risk assessment recently. That's a completely different level of risk. So what is it? What's, what, who's got access to it, right? Because that accessibility, is it open to everybody? Is it open to two people? And that also changes over time. And then how is it being used? And if you, if you know all of those things and you have the ability to effectively automate based on that information, you can do things like lock data down to just who's been using it for the last year. That's pretty powerful. You can do things like know not only what somebody has access to, and, but what they touch on a normal basis. And you know whether that data is sensitive or not. And it becomes a heck of a lot easier to know when Brian's account that's never accessed our data from this device or this location at this time and has never authenticated to this server and has never looked at this kind of data before is suddenly accessing files in a very methodical way and changing the file extensions. Boy, it looks like his, his account might be under the control of a low and slow, a very sophisticated advanced crypto threat. This is when you have that visibility of what the data is and where it is, how it's being accessed and who could have access to it. And you put all that together that kind of visibility is what lets you put guardrails around all of this collaboration because there, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. We all, uh, you know, to talk about, uh, you, you mentioned in the heat of the moment, we open things up. One of my favorite, one of the most useful quotes that I remember from the beginning of COVID, remember March, mid-March 2020, everybody goes home, we get locked down. So now we're all working from home. And there's a CISO of a hedge fund that we work with who said, you know, this, this is how I think about this problem right now in, on March 20th. Um, yesterday, I had five locations. They had five office locations and there were 1,500 people. 
spread amongst those five office locations. That was the that was my attack surface to some extent. That was the problem I was trying to solve for. Today, I have 1,500 office locations, none of which I have any real visibility into at all, each of which with a single user and their spouses and their kids and their Alexas and their, you know, and their game consoles and their internet connected refrigerators and toasters. And it's, oh my goodness, how do I, how do I even manage this attack surface? At the same time, I have no choice. I had a three-year Microsoft Teams rollout plan. We had a very methodical plan for how we were going to roll out this new way to collaborate. Well, that three-year plan turned into a three-week plan, and I'm opening the barn doors because I don't have the time, I don't have the people to know which switches I need to flip to make sure that people can work safely. They just need to work. And that's the world we live in. Open things up, worry about it later. But the world also that we live in is it's so easy when you get access to somebody's data to monetize that access, to steal it, to encrypt it, to hold it for ransom, to extort it. We have, you know, we have an incident response team. It's totally free for our customers, which means that we're involved in basically any time there's any incident, a potential incident, our guys airdrop in. And we learn, we've learned a lot about how these attacks play out. And one of the things that we've learned is that the actual, you know, we talk about ransomware, the actual ransom, the encrypting of the data and leaving a note that's step 30. That's by the time you see a ransom note, they've stolen everything. They've and they've 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 parsed through it. They've searched it. They know what they've got. There was a healthcare company that was it was a hospital system. They were unable to process patients because their all of their data had been locked down. And they're negotiating with their their friendly neighborhood ransomware provider, which they said was interesting. They got better customer service from the ransomware group than they did from any of their security vendors. They could get the ransomware group on the phone. Yeah. Yeah, they get the, the ransomware guys have much better customer service because listen, they, ha, they, they have a financial incentive. And they said, so they're negotiating. They're saying the, the, the ransomware provider said they wanted four and a half or five million dollars to get their data back. And they said, we can't afford that. We're a regional you know, hospital system. And they said, actually, we have all of your financial records. We know that as of yesterday, you had this much money in this account in cash. Please wire it to 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 us. And, we'll, and we don't want all of it. We just want 80% of it. Uh, just wire it to this account. And they said, great. So they did that. And then they said, oh, by the way, you also have to wire us that amount of money if you don't want us to release all the data that we have, your entire patient database on the dark web. So they had to pay again. It's like, oh, sorry, we forgot. You need to pay us again if you don't want us to call CNN to let them know that you've been breached and you have to notify all of your customers. That's the world we live in these days. And there's a fourth shoe that can drop, <laughs> the regulatory issue. Mm -hmm. You have a compliance requirement, for HIPAA or things such as that, and they say, look, we're going to just sick the government on you and you're going to go deal with them and they're not going to negotiate as kindly as we are. So, so let's kind of get into that, not necessarily from the ransomware angle into compliance, but compliance in general. How do organizations meet these various compliance requirements up to including things like GDPR, which has very short timeframe disclosure notices, very specific elements of what you can and can't do uh, and the like. And, and I remember seeing uh, something that was almost, it was kind of a joke, but it was kind of fun. It was called Ship Your Enemies GDPR. It was a little kit that a guy had put together that basically said, fill this out and then you can demand from a competing company all the data on yourself. And then you keep sending it every other day until they use up all their resources answering GDPR queries. But let's, let's back the maliciousness out of it. But then again, to a certain extent, 
compliance is a risk that enterprise CISOs have to think about. Any thoughts on, on proceeding yeah. on that? What's interesting, what's changed is that it used to be, so we do these, we do risk assessments where we will, we'll, 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 we'll scan for regulated data and we start monitoring and map all the access controls. And it used to be, sometimes we would hear a CISO say, I, you know what, I don't want to do this because I know as soon as you do it, you're going to identify all kinds of things that I'm going to have to fix. I know it's a disaster, but we don't live in that world anymore because the GDPR, CCPA, the other state regulations, Brazil's uh, LGPD, Canada's PEPEDA, China's privacy law, they're all data centric. It used to just be about, do I have a control, a perimeter control in place? And now it's, no, the data doesn't belong to you. And you bring up this notion of what are called data subject requests. Show me all the data that you've ever collected on me. I'm going to keep doing that to make your life really difficult. But it's, it makes sense because the data that you've collected about me, my name and my address and my behavior, it, it's, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And that's kind of the, been the, the bit of the paradigm shift over the last few years. So if the data doesn't belong to you, that means you can't just treat it like garbage that you've thrown into a closet somewhere and completely forgotten about. You need to have this level of visibility. And there's, it's not just the data subject request. That's one problem to solve. But the GDPR also says that you need to have privacy by design and default. If 20% of your data is open to literally every single employee that walks in the door and every contractor that, that authenticates to your network, I would argue very strongly, and many have, that you do not have privacy by design and default on those systems. You need to lock things down to just who needs them reasonably. Like there's only so much you can do. But GDPR also says you need to have breach notification. If somebody accesses or exfiltrates uh, personal data, you need to know about it within a reasonable time frame, and you need to notify affected parties. So you can't just shove data, again, back to this garage metaphor, you can't just shove data into a box, leave it in the dark and not worry about it. Because if it gets exfiltrated or stolen or accessed inappropriately, you need to notify those people. You have a you have a fiduciary duty to do that, which means not only do you need to know that it's there, not only do you need to make sure that the right people have access to it, you need to watch it. And this goes back to that ransomware conversation too. Too much of this data is just not monitored usefully or not monitored at all. So when we don't monitor things, it's you can't catch what you can't see. You can't notify of someone of a breach if you don't know that you were breached. You can't stop ransomware if you're not watching how that data is being accessed. So what's also changing is that organizations are taking a much more thoughtful approach saying, okay, if we know that the data, A, much of it doesn't belong to us, B, because it's collaborative, can end up in places we don't expect, accessible by people we don't expect, being used in ways we don't expect, we need to have visibility into everything. And because the data is the target, nobody breaks into a bank to steal the pens. They're after money. Nobody's getting access to your network, whether it's on-premises, the cloud, or both, unless they're after data. Data is the target, so we need to monitor data. And the benefit of that is that data is the single most reliable way to catch a threat, whether it's a cyber criminal group or a ransomware attack or a, an insider threat. You want to you catch an insider? You know, we have a threat model called the Early Resignation Detection System because we know when people are about to leave, because guess what you do right before you give your two weeks? You go and you grab everything you've ever worked on, right? I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. It may not be malicious. Sometimes it is. Yeah, and sometimes in sales too, I remember early versions of Salesforce, like, hey, can we, uh, nope, nope, you can't fence that. Can we do, no, no, and you know, they proved some things. We could do an entire episode on Salesforce for missions because I've had to get really smart in Salesforce over the last year. The, go to a Salesforce admin and ask them, what does Brian have access to? And they're going to say, okay, well, I have to look at his profile 
And then I have to look at this permission set and a permission set can actually contain uh, be contained within what's called permission set groups. So as this, and your profile has hundreds of settings about what you could do. Your, your, per, your profile also has object settings with where you could do it. And what you can touch and what you could do at the field level is it's all additive. Permission set on top of permission set on top of permission set. And by default in Salesforce, you can only see the last 20 events of what someone did, or you can export the last 120 days to CSV and then good luck figuring it out yourself. Salesforce is in, you know, Salesforce data protection and security from a maturity standpoint is today in 2022 where NTFS file systems were 15 years ago. The admins know that this is a nightmare. Ask them when a sales rep leaves, what did he have access to? Like, what could he have looked at? What did he looked at? look at? At a major real estate company, we found by doing an audit of their Salesforce environments, they had, I think, 142 users that were disabled, that still had access to the environment. They had 12 admins that were former contractors. The contract had ended, but those admin accounts were still active. Two of them were super admins, and one of them had shown activity in the last week. This is what happens. People have no idea what's going on. Well, you know, our goal is not to bash a particular vendor, of course, but I mean, I, as a CISO, I deal, well, but I deal with that as well, the same thing, and it, it works well. So as a software as a service platform, it really does a very useful thing. But again, if, if the control panel for security looks like the instrument panel of a 747, then it's going to be likely that you're going to miss something. And so we turn to automation, we turn to third-party tools, things that could act as a shim, if you will, between that thousand control set and something where we can define some sort of a policy or overall approach that said, this is what I want to accomplish and let somebody else kind of say, all right, fine, I can push all the dials and buttons for you and make sure that you're going to get what you want. So this has been fascinating time. And I, I suspect we could probably continue this conversation for another hour or so, but I don't think our listeners are going to have that much patience. Might come back again and take a look at it. But yeah, so we've talked a lot, a bunch of things. We've looked at one of the things that I took away from here, the idea of the, the triad of productivity and convenience and security. And sometimes it's like, pick any two. I, I would argue you can't, you can't pick any two there. You can't, well, you can, but you have to do it uh, you, you have to have visibility into what's happening. You it's, need all three. We're right? always managing that. You're, you're managing that tension. Right. It, it's, it's a, it's a three-way tug of war and, but it does need to take place. You know, what is it? Who has access? How is it used as a way of looking at our data? And then looking, as we talked about with respect to compliance and some of the issues that could take place there, being able to have a pretty solid understanding of who has access, where, what's old, what's stale, how do we know that our access lists are not old and stale, if you will? And then what's worse is, as you had said, an expired user, expired external user, an expired external super user, super admin still having access on a regular basis. That's, that's the stuff that should keep people up at night. So any closing thoughts you can think of? I would close with this. I think the, the, one of the biggest challenges a CISO or anybody worried about data protection these days has is that you don't know what you don't know. It's, it, we, we often look at security through very narrow lenses. We try to solve tactical problems while, th while not taking a step back and saying, what are the outcomes that we're trying to solve for? I, I, I try to, when I'm interacting or, or I'm trying to help somebody understand how to protect their data, since that's what we do, what are, what, what are the outcomes that you're actually trying to get to? Because it's not classifying data. That's not an outcome. 
just just knowing what data, what sensitive data you have isn't doesn't solve a problem. In fact, for I, I would argue for most organizations, if you solve that one problem, where is sensitive data, you're going to create hundreds of thousands of new problems because it's going to end up in places you don't expect accessible by people you don't expect being used in ways that you had no idea. The outcome is, is my data protected? Meaning, is it generally where it's supposed to be? Is it locked down to just who needs it? Is it not exposed to everybody? And can I lower two key factors? Besides measuring the risk and reducing it safely without breaking anything, what's my time to detection and what's my time to resolution? And how do I lower those numbers? Because we no longer live in a world where you can wait six months before you even discovered that a threat actor is on your network. And then once you do discover it, you can't wait six months more before you have a complete picture about what happened. So monitoring data in a useful way, which is the most reliable way to detect a threat to data. You know, the reason credit card, card companies are so good and other banks are so good at catching fraud, it's because they watch the money. So if you're worried about data, watch the data. That's some wise advice. Well, thank you very much for your time on the show. This has been fascinating. This is uh, G. Mark Carter, your host for CISO Tradecraft along with Brian Vecchi from Veronis. And you've talked about some really cool things that have got me thinking now about better ways to help defend my enterprise. For everybody who's had a chance to listen in, thank you very much for being a subscriber to CISO Tradecraft. If you're not a subscriber, please do so. And don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn as we provide a regular stream of information that we think will help you in your career journey. So until next time, thank you for listening and stay safe.